So when I was uh, about five years old or so, I was at the uh, daycare, and uh, my mom had dropped me off there with one of her best friends owned the daycare, and I was playing tug-of-war with the owner of the daycare's daughter. And, uh, and so we were on this platform, and it was shaped uh, like, um, kind of like a pyramid, and I was at the top, and she was at the bottom, and, uh, and we were playing tug-of-war with this uh, blanket. And uh, in the middle of the game, she decided to let go, and so I tumbled off the back of this thing about six feet directly on my head. So I had a concussion, was in the hospital for a little bit, and so forth. And I always think of that story whenever I think of some of the more controversial, difficult aspects of theology. You see, we have a tendency to want to simplify everything, to, to reduce it down to its kind of lowest common denominator. We want to think through lenses of something being either this or that, when oftentimes in theology what we have to hold to is a both and. And so even as we're going to talk about in two weeks, is God sovereign or is man responsible for his sin? Well, it's not an either or, it's a both and. and so what we'll talk about today are two of these areas where it is very dangerous for us to think through a very simplistic model of an either-or when a both-and is what we need. Is God three or is God one? Is Jesus uh, human or is Jesus God? These are areas where if we try to go with an either-or, we find ourselves in trouble the same way that if you're playing tug-of-war and somebody lets go one of those sides, somebody's going to tumble off the structure. You need to keep the tension on both sides. And so that's what we'll talk about today as we talk through Christology and Trinitarianism. But first, just to kind of give us an orientation to the topic, I think it's really important for us to emphasize what the Old Testament emphasizes, which is the idea of monotheism. Monotheism is probably one of the most dominant themes of the Old Testament. In fact, it is almost the entirety of the prophetic uh, condemnation or judgment or warnings that's labeled against Israel is their failure to embrace this uh, vision of God being unique. The vision of Yahweh being central, being singular, being the only one, being sacred and holy, and so forth. It's, it's such the backbone of the Old Testament that you might summarize the entire message of the Old Testament as one of the centrality, the unity, and singularity of Yahweh. So consider just these few passages. You should have them on your handout, although I don't think I put the references so that we didn't get too many pieces of, of paper in your hands. But uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Unity there of the Lord. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another. Over and over and over and over again, Yahweh 
is going to proclaim that he alone is God and that he will not share his glory with anyone, that his glory is reserved for him and him alone. So there's one fundamental problem of the Old Testament. If there's one underlying root uh, issue, disease, that everything else is just a symptom of, it's the fact that Israel consistently turns to other gods. It's the fact that, as Romans 1 would describe it, rather than worshiping the Creator, Israel worships creation. They worship themselves. So there's this underlying root issue of idolatry that runs out throughout the entire Old Testament. That is the kind of overarching theme of the Scripture, of the Old Testament, that Yahweh alone is God. And the charge for denying that, the charge for uh, having anyone share in Yahweh's glory is blasphemy, and the penalty for blasphemy is death. Leviticus 24, 13 through 16, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And the reason is because the Lord knows that a little leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. And that this, to ascribe glory to anything other than God himself, is treason. It's rebellion. So even though there are these, these whispers that you might uh, pick up if you read the Old Testament through a Trinitarian lens, the most dominant theme, what screams louder than anything else throughout the Old Testament is the idea that Yahweh alone is God. So with that in mind, you can better understand whenever we get to the New Testament and Jesus says things like, my Father and I are one, why? The immediate response of the Jewish authorities is to attempt to kill him. They're simply doing what, it, what God has prescribed for them. If Jesus is not who he says he is, then certainly they're uh, acting obediently in uh, judging him. And the reason that they would do that is because what Jesus is saying, if it's not true, it's blasphemous. And the penalty for blasphemy is death because it is going to result in national consequences of judgment and exile and famine and plague and so forth. So with that in mind, what I want to do is something a little bit uh, bizarre. I want to fast forward a couple of hundred years uh, and then rewind back a little bit. I want to fast forward into early church history and show some of the, uh, the way that the early church developed and articulated the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that's the, the, the two natures of Christ, and then rewind and see how we actually see that within the New Testament uh, itself. And so in order to do that, what we need to do is we need to talk about councils and, uh, and creeds. Councils and creeds. Now, some of you might have grown up in a context where you had this uh, idea that is uh, no, count, no creed but the Bible itself. Right? Hopefully everybody realizes that that itself is a creed that's not in the Bible. Right? And so that's, there's irony there. No creed but the Bible itself is not a good creed because it's not uh, consistent with itself. And so what we want to do is we want to talk a little bit about councils 
and creeds. So what, what are these creeds? I think a, a helpful analogy would be creeds are uh, portraits. Creeds are portraits that are intending to paint a picture for us. And sometimes those pictures are really, really good, as you've probably uh, encountered artists who are really, really good, and they painted a picture, and you look at that picture, and you think, man, that looks just like me. And then other times, you have artists, and uh, they paint a picture, and it looks like Picasso had maybe done some drugs or something like that, and you've given him a crayon and hopped him up on 20 cups of coffee or something like that. And, uh, and so there's, in the same way, some of the councils, some of the creeds are really, really good. They are really, really accurate reflections of Scripture, while other ones are uh, distortions of Scripture. But in, in and of themselves, what uh, creeds are attempting to do is to summarize and articulate the scriptural revelation. The Scripture itself is what is authoritative, and the creeds are authoritative insofar as they properly reflect what the Scripture says. Another way that you might think about it, our, our creeds are kind of like those nets that you put around trampolines today. You know, when I was a kid, you didn't have those. You jumped in the center of the trampoline, or you died. That was pretty much the only sort of uh, options that you had there. Today, they have these huge nets on it that you couldn't jump over even if you wanted. That's kind of what a creed is. It's, it's, it's this boundary of belief that protects us from jumping off into the hedges of heresy or something like that. Or another way you might want to think about it is these, these uh, bumper pads in bowling. If you ever go bowling and you put out the bumper pads, those are typically just for kids, although I've seen some adults use them as well. They don't guarantee that you're going to get a strike, right? But they do pretty much prevent you from rolling off into the gutter unless you just completely throw it into the next uh, alley or something like that. And so that's the way that creeds are going to function. They're intending to just keep us from going over the edge and into some sort of uh, misunderstanding, misapplication of what the Scripture is going to teach. And the reason that these are important, especially as it relates to Trinitarianism, is because Trinitarian, uh, Trin Trinitarianism is probably our most distinctive doctrine as uh, Christians. It is, if you will, the litmus test for orthodoxy. So think about all the other world religions. Every single other world religion, there is no other world religion that conceives of God in a triune manner. Even the cults, think about all of the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, all of these sorts of things. All of them, their sort of base uh, uh, distortion of biblical teaching is around the nature of God. And, uh, and typically they lean towards a view of God that is polytheistic, that there are multiple gods. And so it's Trinitarianism that is, if you will, the most distinctive doctrine that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Whether it's Hinduism, which is uh, polytheistic, or Islam, which is monotheistic, or even modern-day uh, Judaism, um, Trinitarianism is going to be sort of the distinguishing doctrine. And so wh why, the, why, why is there such a fuss? So we're talking about the Trinity. Why is there such a fuss over a word that's not even in the Bible? Right? So the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Trinitarian is not in the Bible. Trinitarianism is not in the Bible. You know some other words that are not in the Bible? Love, faith, believe, grace, all these words. Why aren't those words in the Bible? Because they're English, right? 
English words, the Bible wasn't written in English, right? It was written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and so forth. And so these words are not what's important. What's important is, is the underlying concept in there. We talked before, what's the underlying root issue with Israel in the Old Testament? What do they consistently do? Worship false gods. And what do we call that? What's the theological term for that? Idolatry, all right? So when Jesus gets on the scene in the first century and he preaches and he teaches, you might think that he might talk a whole lot about idolatry, right? You know how many times if you're reading the ESV or the NASB or one of these other translations of the Scripture, you know how many times Jesus uses the word idolatry or idol? Zero. Does that mean in any sense, does anyone here believe that Israel has somehow moved beyond idolatry in Jesus' time? Absolutely not. That's still the critique that he is leveling against them. He's just not using the word. He's using the concept. In the same way, we don't see the word Trinity or the word Trinitarian or Trinitarianism or any of these sorts of things in the Scripture. But the important thing is not the use of the word itself. It's the concept. Is the concept in there? And the concept certainly is uh, in there. And so let's talk about how it's developed historically, and then we'll go back uh, and, uh, and look at the Scripture themselves. So as early as when the apostles are preaching and teaching, there are false teachings that are circulating around the church. Somebody name one of those false teachings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to fully follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved. They were, they were called Judaizers. Paul's probably the, the clearest example of combating that. There's people that are going around and saying, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Yeah, that's absolutely one. There's a number of other ones circulating around in the first century as well, but that's probably the most uh, common one that we recognize. By the end of the, the, the time, the, the apostolic period, the, the death of the last apostle and so forth, by the end of this period, you are going to see the development of a particular uh, false teaching that's called Gnosticism. Not important that you uh, know that word, but if you want, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism, from the Greek word gnosis, as in like diagnosis, which means knowledge. And, uh, and so Gnosticism was a false teaching, and that false teaching was going to rely upon uh, Platonic thought. Platonic thought you're probably most familiar with the word as in like a platonic relationship. What's a platonic relationship? <laughs> yeah, single. <laughs> it's, a, it's a friendship, right? Uh, the, the technical meaning of it is, it is uh, it's not physical, right? So a, a boy and a girl, they can have a physical relationship or they can have just kind of a spiritual, emotional relationship. Platonic relationship is one that is not physical because it's based on the teachings of Plato, not the molding clay, but the, the philosopher, all right? And so Plato, what he taught was everything that is material, everything that is physical, everything that is part of the created world is bad, evil, ugh, don't like that. Everything that is spiritual, everything that is immaterial is good, and we like that. So there's this uh, dichotomy between the physical world and the, the uh, spiritual world. And so this is what the, the false teachers were, uh, were kind of uh, beginning to develop towards the end of the first century. We see even hints 
of this in John's gospel and uh, in uh, John's epistles and so forth as there's this strong emphasis that Jesus came in the flesh and the word became flesh. The importance of that, because if you're a Gnostic, you would say, absolutely not. God, who is perfectly holy, cannot become flesh because that's bad. That's evil. That's wicked. So there's this false teaching that develops. But by the, uh, the turn of the uh, third, fourth century, there is a new sheriff in town, and his name is Arius. And Arius was a teacher who was really, really reflecting upon Proverbs chapter 8. And in Proverbs chapter 8, it talks about wisdom. And it says, wisdom was with God when the earth was created. But here's the problem. Wisdom itself was created. And then Arius begins to read the New Testament, and he reads things like that Jesus is the righteousness and wisdom of God. And he puts the New Testament teaching together with Proverbs chapter 8, and he concludes, well, therefore, Jesus is wisdom. Wisdom is created. Jesus is a created being. And this begins to take off, that Jesus is not co-eternal with the Father, that Jesus is not fully God, that Jesus is semi-God, that he's a created being. He's the first of all creation. He's the highest of all creation. You can even hear hints of how he's taking uh, what, uh, what Paul would write in Colossians where he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And he's just taking that and he's stretching it beyond what Paul means, whereas Paul means he's the firstborn over creation. He's using the imagery of a firstborn child. A firstborn child rules over the family. That's what Paul is intending, but he's stretching that meaning and he's saying Jesus himself is created. And so this is the first heresy that's beginning to circulate as it uh, relates to uh, the Trinity. In addition to that, so we have uh, Arianism, which says Jesus is created. That's the first uh, heresy there, if you're, you're keeping notes on the little sheet there, that Jesus is created. This, think most modern cults. Most modern cults are just some sort of Arian heresy, all right? They, they exalt Jesus, they honor Jesus, they think Jesus is really, really great, but he's not fully God. He's a God, he's not the God. That's Arianism. There's also another teaching that's circulating uh, around the same time, and, uh, and that is Sabellianism. That's a fun one to spell. S-A-B-B-E-L-L. Sabellianism. Arianism is... Unlike Zach, I pride myself on my spelling. Uh, Sabellianism. Sabellianism is also known as uh, modalism. And uh, it's, it's the belief that uh, the, the three uh, persons of the Trinity are not actually unique persons. They're merely different modes by which God appears. So sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Spirit. They're just different modes M-O-D-E-S. So it's called modalism uh, also. So this was another teaching that was circulating around in the church. Think, uh, if you've ever seen Terminator 2, think of the liquid Terminator and shapeshifter. Sometimes it's a man, sometimes it's a woman, sometimes it is tall, sometimes it's short, sometimes it's fat, sometimes it's skinny, it doesn't matter. It's just shifting and so forth. That's kind of what modalism or Sabellianism is. The idea that God just manifests himself in different times, in different ways. 
but it's just all the same person. Kind of like if I were to say, the Trinity is like me. I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm a pastor. All right? Well, but yeah, I'm still just one person. And so it's not Trinitarian because Trinitarianism is going to confess that Jesus or, or that uh, God is uh, one in essence, but three in person. So that's another teaching that's circulating around the church. Another one being subordinationism. Subordinationism, just like the word subordinate, but subordination. And, and that is the, the view that Christ is eternal. But he is, uh, here's a big word for you, ontologically subordinate. Ontologically, that is by his very nature, he is subordinate to the Father. So he's not fully equal to the Father. And, uh, and so this was another teaching that was circulating around and they just they were listening to the text. All these all these heresies are listening to the scripture. They're just misinterpreting the scripture. So those who would confess subordinationism would say things like, "Well, Jesus says the Father is greater than I." And so that's what they're going to be now. In in Trinitarian uh, historical Trinitarian theology, we can confess that there is functional subordination. That is that in terms of their roles. The Son submits to the Father, but that's different. Functional subordination is different from ontological. Jesus is not naturally uh, going to be uh, subordinate. The Father is not uh, in some sort of uh, natural hierarchy over uh, the Son. And then the last one is adoptionism, adoptionism, which just teaches Jesus was a great man, probably the best man that ever lived. And so, therefore, at his baptism, he was adopted by the Father, and he was uh, empowered by God, and somehow he became God-like. But again, he wasn't eternally uh, the Son of God. And so, all of these different views are going to be creeping up into the church over the first few centuries. And so, as a response, what's happening is the empire, uh, by this time, uh, the empire is uh, at least somewhat uh, Christianized. And, uh, and so the empire, though, is going to be going through all of this division because one person is teaching Arianism, another t- person is teaching Sabellianism, one person is uh, confessing something much more like what we see. Uh, it's going to be developed in Trinitarian sort of language. And so all of these fights begin to break out within the churches, uh, within the empire. And so the emperor, whose name is Constantine, he calls this council, not because he's all that concerned about theological purity, but because he's concerned, as all emperors are, with political unity. He's concerned about what's happening in his empire as a result of all of these schisms and factions and divisions. So he calls this what's called an ecumenical council, E-C-U-M-E-N-I-C-A-L, ecumenical council which is a council of all of the various bishops, all of the various priests and so forth throughout the empire. He calls together a collection of all of them. And there's this first ecumenical council, this first worldwide or universal council where their goal is to hammer out how do we think of God? What's the Father's relationship to the Son and also to the Spirit? How are we to conceive of these various things. And so they gather together at a place called Nicaea. Nicaea, N-I, I'll write it down. 
N-I-C-A-E-A, Nicaea, and they gather there in 325 A.D. And so they have representatives throughout the empire that are there to hash through these issues together. And uh, in the context of this council, they come up with what we today still confess in regards to the basic contours. Remember, uh, the purpose of creeds is not to tell you everything possible about the subject. It's simply to put some borders and some boundaries there. And so what it does is it puts these boundaries in three particular confessions, three confessions. That is, God is three persons. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is only one God. So what they mean by that is that uh, the Father absolutely is God, but the Father is not the Son and is not the Spirit. The Son absolutely is God, but the Son is not the Father and is not the Spirit. The Spirit absolutely is God, but He is not the Father, nor is He the Son. As a result of this, what this means is, if you've ever heard these analogies, people say that God is, uh, like I talked about earlier with modalism, I'm a pastor and a father and a husband and so forth. Every single analogy you can apply to the Trinity is probably wrong, right? Because it's unlike anything that we could actually relate it to. So you've maybe heard before that God is like a shamrock, three-leaf clover, or God is like water and ice and, uh, and vapor or something like that. All of these, in some sense, are going to kind of default on one of these three confessions, that God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is only uh, one God. And so what I think is really helpful, though, for us as it relates to the Trinity is to, re- uh, to remember three words. There's a sense of unity There's a sense of diversity, and how both of those are true is somewhat shrouded in mystery. So as long as you have some sort of confession and conception of the fact that God is unified, there is only one God, and yet God is eternally, God eternally exists in three persons, that's diversity, but how in the world that uh, somehow makes logical sense is uh, probably shrouded to some degree in uh, mystery. And this is, again, this is one of those areas where our minds are going to naturally default towards trying to simplify, towards trying to go either or. We're going to naturally either default towards more of the God is one and less of the God is three, or naturally default more towards God is three and not God is one. So that's where, again, we need to keep that tension as that illustration whenever you first came in of me up there playing tug of war. If one of us lets go, if you let go of the oneness of God, you get polytheism. If you let go of the diversity of God, the the triune nature of God, you're going to be left with Islam or modern Judaism, or something like that. So we want to hold both of those uh, confessions uh, tight. And so, 
Uh, what we find as we reflect upon the Trinity is there are these profound practical implications for us. This is not just some sort of abstract philosophical thing that the church was wrestling through uh, back in the fourth century. This is actually very, very practical for you and for me as we find this reality that is there is this deep profundity in prepositions. In particular, these. From, through, and by. From, through, and by. And what we find is we find all of the promises of God, they flow down to us from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Every promise that the Father has given to us, all the promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. They're from the Father, but they're through the Son and they're by the Spirit. Every single thing that the Father has promised to you and to me. In the same way, we find this interesting fact that all of our praise is going to flow up from us through the Son and this would be to the Father. So, wait. So this should be promises to us. Sorry. So all of our praise flow from us through the Son by the Spirit as we pray in the Spirit and to the Father. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this. All of the promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Everything comes through Jesus Christ, which is why we utter our amen in Him. You ever wonder why you say amen in Jesus' name? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's because all of our praise is flowing from us through the Son, we're praying by the Spirit who is enabling us and is going to the Father. Second Corinthians one twenty. Yeah. One other point on uh, Trinitarianism before we uh, go to uh, Christology, that is uh, how the two natures exist in Jesus that I think is really helpful. Another thing that you see here that's really applicable for us is the reality of the way that the Son is going to submit to the Father. You see there are these diverse roles and responsibilities within the Godhead. That there are certain things that one member of the Trinity does that the other person, that another person of the Trinity doesn't do. It's the Son who dies for our sin, not the Father. Now, probably every one of us has accidentally at some point prayed and said, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Technically, that's heretical, though, right? You see that? The Father didn't die on the cross for your sins. The Son died on the cross for your sins, which should, if you're thinking about it, again, it's not just some sort of abstract philosophical thing. It should lead you to a much deeper appreciation of what the Father has done, right? How many of you would die for somebody that you wouldn't allow your kid to die for? That's a profoundly other, different level of love that is experienced for you to give your son for something. And so we see this submission that exists within the Godhead and this mutual deference and giving preference. And so if you were to think of Jesus, whenever he's talking, he says, there's going to be another helper. And when that other helper comes, he's going to bear witness to me. Not me, Jeff. Jesus. 
The Spirit's role is to bear witness to the Son. That's His role. So you praise the Spirit, and what does the Spirit do? He deflects the praise. And he says, yeah, but look at Jesus. Look at how beautiful He is. And the same thing with the Son. The Son, over and over and over, Jesus is going to say, I'm only doing what my Father tells me to do. I'm listening to the words of my Father. I'm doing the works that my Father does. In other words, you look at Jesus and you say, man, you are glorious. And he says, you think I'm glorious. Look at my Father. They're constantly deflecting praise and glory onto each other. How encouraging should that be for us? We in our pride thinking we are something, and Jesus who actually is something is deflecting onto another. It should teach us this profoundly new level of, of submission and humility and, uh, and so forth. And you see, even, even there, even as it relates to men and women's roles and so forth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about uh, that, that uh, wives submit to their husbands as Jesus submits to the Father. Jesus doesn't submit to the Father as a, an inferior. He submits to the Father as one who is absolutely equal to the Father. And yet, out of humility, He submits Himself. So, we call this sort of uh, idea of mutual submission and deference and, and giving preference to each other and so forth. What has traditionally been called is uh, perichoresis. Perichoresis. And, uh, and it's uh, from a root word uh, that uh, is the same word as choreography. So what's choreography? What do you choreograph? Dance, right? right? So that's what it means. It means dance. And that's what uh, perichoresis is. Peri as in perimeter, something that goes around. It's this dance that goes around within uh, the Trinity, as God is, uh, the Father is giving glory to the Son, and the Son is giving glory to the Father, and on and on we could go. Again, this helps us to understand now this community that exists within uh, the Trinity. As Jesus would say things like, I desire that they be one even as you are one, we now begin to see how you and I have a responsibility and the opportunity to mirror God's triune nature in our relationships with each other. That's part of what we're doing later today whenever we launch community groups. It's trying to cultivate a setting in which that happens. We can't guarantee that's going to happen. It's not like if you go to a community group, all of a sudden you're going to be perfectly humble and submit to each other and give preference to each other and so forth. All we're trying to do is cultivate a, uh, an opportunity for that, a place for that to happen, a venue for that sort of expression to take place. So let's fast forward even more now from the 4th century into the 5th century. The church has by and large settled the idea of how we are to understand the three persons of the Godhead relating to each other. But now they're beginning to wrestle with, okay, but, but who is Jesus? Because we see that he's God, and yet we see that he's man. So how are these two things both true. Again, we're wanting to default towards an either or. Is he more God or more man? Which one is he? And so the church begins to wrestle uh, with that. And, uh, and so again, a council is going uh, to be called. But uh, again, why, why is this important? Why is it important for us to reflect upon this? Why is it important for them 
to call a council on these things? Why, why do they really need to understand, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? Why can't they just love everybody and get along and, uh, and so forth? Well, because the early church recognized that if there's a distortion in your view of who God is or there's a distortion in your view of who Christ is, quickly everything else around that is going to unravel. So just as, a, as an example, let's say, just for, an exa- just for a second, that Jesus isn't really human. Some of the heresies that we're going to look at are going to promote the idea that Jesus is not really human. What's the big deal? Well, if Jesus isn't really human, then you can't trust the Bible, which says that Jesus is human. And if you can't trust the Bible, that's a pretty big deal. Furthermore, if Jesus isn't fully human, we don't have a sympathetic high priest who is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses, which is another pretty big deal. Not to mention the fact that if he wasn't really human, he couldn't really die. And if he didn't really die, then he didn't rise from the dead either. And if he didn't rise from the dead, you and I aren't going to rise from the dead. You see how quickly you begin to pull on this one little strand that seems like it's abstract, it seems like it's philosophical, it seems like it's over our head, it's too intellectual, it's too academic for us. But you see, if you begin to pull on it a little bit, the whole sweater is going to unravel. And pretty soon, you're not wearing anything at all. What hope do you have? So again, the, the, the councils and the creeds are going to come around us in these moments and say, I'm not going to help you by giving you a full-fledged understanding of how this works. There's always going to be an element of mystery. But let me give you some borders here so that you don't pull that thread and find yourself completely unraveled. So in the 5th century, you have a number of uh, heresies that are uh, floating around as it relates to trying to articulate who Jesus is. Is he God or is he human? The first one is Nestorianism. Nestorianism. And think, when you think of Nestorianism, think schizophrenic Jesus. He's kind of schizophrenic. He had a, he's divine and he's human, but only one at a time. It's kind of like modalism. Um, sometimes he's human, sometimes he's divine. So when Jesus gets tired, he's, which one? Human. When he walks on water, he's divine. So sometimes he's divine, sometimes he's uh, human. And, uh, and so if you will, kind of you can think of that as this. Human and, that's a, uh, it's supposed to be a D. Human and divine, that's Jesus. Sometimes he's one, sometimes he's the other. That's Nestorianism. Then you have Eutychianism. Eutychianism, E-U-T-Y-C-H-I-A-N-I-S-M, um, which is the idea that kind of Jesus' divinity and his humanity have kind of collided. And in that collision, they formed something that's entirely new. It's neither fully God nor fully human. So you have his uh, human nature, and you have his divine nature. And they've combined together to form some sort of mutant new nature. So think Kool-Aid. You have, you have the Kool-Aid powder, and you have water. And you combine the two, and all of a sudden, it's neither powder nor pure water. That's what uh, Eutychianism is going to confess, that uh, the, the two natures have somehow 
merge to form something that is neither, again, neither God nor man, but some sort of mixture or mutant between the two. And then the last one is Apollinarianism. By the way, all of these are named after Nestorius, uh, Eutychus, Apollinarius, and so forth. They're all named after the, the major proponents. Apollinarianism said that Jesus had a, a divine soul with a, a human body. So, that's his human body, and this is his divine soul. And they combined together, and so he was part God, part man, uh, but again, not fully uh, either. And so the early church is going to, and again, so why is this, why is this important? Like if you're thinking through the lens of why, why is this important? Well, because uh, it's not merely our bodies that we want saved, it's our souls as well. It's our minds and so forth. And so the early church reflected upon these sorts of things and recognized if he didn't have a human soul and he didn't have a human mind and he didn't have a human will, then our human mind and human soul and human will is not saved. Because Jesus only saves that which he assumes. Jesus only saves whatever he takes on in himself. And so these are the three heresies that are kind of floating around uh, within the uh, 5th century or so. And so the church gets together at a place called Chalcedon. Chalcedon. In 451 A.D. To hash out. How do we understand the, de- uh, the deity and humanity of Jesus. And they articulated what we call the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Hypostasis is a word that is similar to the way that we use the word person. So hypostatic union is the union of two natures in one person. Union and hypostasis uh, person. It's the union of two natures in one particular person. And so they said uh, this in Chalcedon. Um, Basically, that Jesus' humanity and his deity, they coexist in one person. He's one person with two natures. He's one person with two natures. So, that means that we don't say, that's human Jesus and that's divine Jesus. We just say, that's Jesus. He's got two natures ever since uh, the incarnation. And so, this is one of those portraits both of these things, as we reflect upon Trinitarianism and Christology, these are portraits that I think are really, really helpful, good portraits. They're not those crazy portraits by Picasso on drugs or whatever it might be. These are, are really good boundaries for us. Over time, though, what's going to happen is even some of the aspects of these uh, portraits, of these creeds, are going to be distorted. And so there's something in this particular one that's really going to be distorted, and that is there is a word that is used in the Chalcedonian uh, Confession, Theotokos. And, uh, and so in the middle of the creed, it's going to say that Mary is Theotokos, mother of God. Now, what they meant by that is that the child in Mary's womb is God himself. He didn't become God later, that Mary actually gave birth to the Son of God. So with that, we would absolutely agree with that. 
But you can see how over time that is going to develop into a veneration of Mary, which is going to develop into the worship of Mary, which is going to develop into the Immaculate Conception and all of these sorts of things. So you can see how even when there's a good creed, little aspects of it can be twisted and distorted uh, over uh, time. So since this is a New Testament theology class, we should spend a little bit of time in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, you want to open up to Mark 2. I just want to take a couple of passages from a couple of, of books of the Bible, and, uh, and then we'll open up for uh, some questions about this topic or anything else. And a lot of these, because we'll start in Mark, because Mark's the first uh, gospel to be written, and, uh, and so a lot of these things uh, we've actually already preached through, because we've been going through Mark for almost a year now. And uh, so you should be familiar with a lot of the things that we'll be talking about, but just by way of reinforcement. So in Mark chapter 2, the very first pericope there, the very first uh, section of Scripture, the very first story that's told is Jesus healing a paralytic. And what's going on there is uh, Jesus, his first response, these, these people come, they're going to lower this paralytic to Jesus uh, through a, a hole in the roof because the crowd is blocking them. And Jesus' first response to them is what? What does he say? It's his very first words. My son, your, your sins are forgiven. Is that what they came for? No, no. At least ostensibly their root need seems to be the fact that this guy's paralyzed. He can't move. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And we see throughout this uh, particular account that Jesus is going to, to, to claim the privileges that only God has. He's going to do what only God can do. So the, the Pharisees are going to be, or the scribes are going to be absolutely right when they begin to question in their hearts and say, who can f- forgive sins but God alone? They're right. Nobody can. They just miss what Jesus is implying in that. Jesus is doing what only God can do. Why can only God do it? Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned, David says. In other words, no matter what your sin is, even if it has these drastic horizontal dimensions, you murder somebody, you commit adultery, that's the context of David's confession in Psalm 51. No matter what you do that has horizontal dimensions, it's first and foremost a vertical offense against God. And so since Against God have we ultimately sinned. It's only God who can forgive sin. So the Pharisees pick up on that, and, uh, and Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he calls himself the Son of Man, which is a, uh, a reference to Daniel chapter 7, and this vision of one who is sitting beside the Ancient of Days with glory uh, uh, coming down from the heavens. And so read this. What Jesus is saying about himself in light of what the Old Testament says, that God will not give his glory to another. And you can see how the early church began to wrestle with, who is this man? Who is this man who claims prerogatives and privileges that only God the Father uh, seems to have, or at least only God seems to have? In Mark chapter 4, 
They're on a boat. Jesus is asleep on the boat. He wakes up. He rebukes the wind. And he says to the sea, peace, be still. I preached on that passage a few months back and talked about the fact that what Jesus is doing is something that only Yahweh can do. Throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, it says that Yahweh alone is the one who calms the sea. And here Jesus is doing what only God can do, which is the reason why, as we talked about in the sermon, it says after Jesus had already calmed the sea, they were filled with great fear, verse 41. I can understand being filled with great fear in the midst of the storm, but that's not when these people are fearing the great fear or feeling the great fear. That's after the stilling of the storm because that is more frightening to them than stilling the storm itself. The implications of who Jesus must be are terrifying to them in their context because Jesus is doing something that man does not do. In fact, in, uh, in their uh, in their literature that they would have been familiar with in that day, there was a, a legend of Antiochus. If you remember Antiochus from our first week, he was the guy who came into the temple, renamed it after Zeus, and then offered a pig on the altar there in the temple. Bad guy, not very sensitive to Jewish relations. Antiochus, according to uh, their sort of uh, legendary uh, literature, he had attempted to rebuke a storm, and as a result, God had struck him down. So they have this conception, this is something only God can do. And yet here Jesus is going to do what only God can do. Or uh, Mark chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and then he walks on water. He walks on water. Not only that, but that is something that only Yahweh does. Throughout the Old Testament, there are psalms that says that he sits enthroned upon the sea or that he treads upon the sea. This is something, again, only Yahweh does. God, Jesus is doing something that only God can do. And then after that, he's going to take God's divine name. He says, take heart, it is I. Literally in the Greek, that is, take heart, ego I me, I am. Which is the revelation of God's name that he gives to Israel. I am. Yahweh means I am that I am or who I am. And so all of these places throughout Mark's gospel, we're going to see this idea that Jesus is going to do what only God can do, claim what only God can claim, walk where only God can walk, take God's divine name. Then we go to the last of the uh, gospels to be written, the book of John. And we find this fascinating uh, interplay where we really begin to see these two words, unity and diversity, over and over and over and over again. That there is some sense in which the Father and the Son are absolutely unified. And there's a sense in which, though, they are at the same time diverse persons. We pick it up in the very first verse of the very first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, hearkening back there to the Genesis uh, uh, creation account. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, diversity. And the Word was God, uh, unity. What's really interesting there, if you want to pour in deeply uh, to 
the, uh, the original Greek, and then also this will help you as you're debating with, if you have anybody uh, from a cultic background. Uh, the, um, the word there, God, and the word was God, it doesn't have an article. It doesn't have the word the in front of it. And, uh, and so this is why some of the cults will say things like, Jesus was a God. They just read that article, a indefinite article in there. Well, why is it that John, as he's writing this, would want to not include and say, clearly, Jesus is the God? Because as he's using the word God in this context, he's meaning Father. And Jesus is not the Father. There is diversity between the two. So he wants to find a way that he can show that there is unity while also at the same time uh, protecting the idea that there is diversity uh, between uh, the two. And we could skip around throughout uh, the book, but looking at John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This sentence right here, more than anything else, probably launched the, uh, the Council of uh, Chalcedon as they're reflecting upon what does it mean for the Word became flesh? Did He truly become flesh? Did He just seem to be flesh? Did He take on aspects of flesh? Did His becoming flesh mean that He became something else, some sort of mutant? Is He sometimes flesh and sometimes divine? This is the language that's leading us into uh, consideration of those sorts of things. John 5, 18 This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He's calling himself, he's calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. Because sons share in the same nature of their father. And so that's the implication there. John 8, 56 through 59 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. We have John 10, which Jesus Jesus is going to say, I am the good shepherd. You read that with the context of Ezekiel 34 where Yahweh has condemned the shepherds of Israel and said, one day I myself will shepherd among you. And so Jesus stands in front of them and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. I am going to be your shepherd. And in me shepherding, God is shepherding his people. Or later on in John 10, 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Unity. He'll also say the Father is greater than I in another passage, diversity. On and on, again, we could go. But you see the same thing develop over and over, such that when we get to Colossians chapter 1, we'll end there and then open up for questions. We get this beautiful statement of who the Son is. So picking up the reference from verse uh, 13, he's the beloved Son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he, that is the beloved Son, is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. Again, we talked about how you could also translate that, the firstborn over all creation. Regardless, the idea there is as the firstborn of a family has, uh, has uh, the blessing over it, as the, he's the heir, so Jesus is the heir over all creation. For by him all things were created. The reason he's the firstborn is because by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then you can move on from there and you could go into the book of Hebrews, which begins with a kind of a similar confession that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of his Father. And then the rest of the book is going to build out how Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to the Levitical law. Jesus is superior to the temple. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is superior to everything. We see the, the supremacy of Christ over all things throughout the book of Hebrews. And in light of that, why would we turn back to anything else? 